You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Let's just open with a word of prayer, then we're going to jump straight in because we want to get through three psalms tonight. Well, dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that we can still come here together. We still have your word, Lord. We still, uh, you still speak to us through it, Father. And I just pray that you would use my words tonight, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would be encouraged, edified, and that your Son would get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Psalm 32. Now let me start with a riddle. Or should I say, riddle me this. It will t- I shouldn't say that. <laughs> we can't cut that now, can we do that? Live streaming. It will take you... Okay, here's the riddle. It will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost you more than you want to pay. And it will require of you more than you want to give. What is it? There we go. It was supposed to be quite obvious, but that is, that is what we're looking at. Because Psalm 32 is really looking at the blessedness of being forgiven from sin. Most of us, we haven't got there yet, but I'm sure many of you are familiar with the famous psalm, confessional psalm of David in Psalm 51, where he pleads with the Lord to wash him from his iniquity. And we all have in mind that he's referring to the, the major sin that we know David for, the sin with Bathsheba and then with, her, with the husband after that it's usually presumed that this is like a follow-on. So Psalm 51 and then Psalm 32 in that order. And if you've ever been in that time where you're having a time of confession before the Lord, I've done it many times, I've sat with Psalm 51 open and you pray through it as you go. A very nice thing to do after you've done that is to go to Psalm 32 and just read Psalm 32 and it sort of puts you in a, a right frame of mind to move on from there. The famous church father, Augustine, this was one of his favorite psalms psalms 32 and also psalm 33 that we'll look at tonight too and it's said that he used to have them inscribed on the wall next to his bed so that he could meditate on them because one of the famous statements that he was known for was saying that the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner and of course there is a a truth in that coming before god humbling ourselves confessing repenting all of these things presuppose that we are sinners and we need to be saved And this is really where the Christian life begins. So let's jump in, read the first couple of verses. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, again, this word blessed or blessed, I've heard people pronounce it both ways. I'm never quite sure which which is the correct way. Blessed, obviously, is generally what I would say. It's often translated happy. You may have a, a, a sort of free translation that translates it happier. I think happy is not quite a strong enough word. It's oh how happy or oh how blessed. I often hear people say that. And it, obviously it's true, but I'd like to go a little bit further. It's not just happy like the song. I've got the lyrics here, but I've lost my nerve now after the first incident, so I'm not going to actually say them. But what this really means in the context of the psalm is to be abundantly satisfied having received the blessings of God. Because we are blessed in the sense that we have received from God. And it is his blessings, and obviously the chief one of his blessings is forgiveness. Forgiveness of the Lord is the ultimate blessing. We would call this justification by faith in a New Testament theological language. This means that God has ordained to cover our sin, 
Not only that, he has paid the penalty to make that possible, to make us clean before God, to give us that right standing, that right relationship, that we may be in communion with the creator of the universe. That is how blessed we are. That's what the psalm is. Something of what David is getting at here when he says that. You remember in the book of Romans, just that premier book of of theology in the New Testament, when Paul is teaching on justification by faith, Romans 4, 5 to 8, he says these words, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, and then he quotes from our psalm here. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered, and blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And we all know our own sin, And we can all be blessed by the fact that the Lord does not take that into account. David knew very well what it was like to fall into sin. All of us know what it's like to fall into sin. But we also know, if we are believers, the blessings of what it is to be forgiven. The blessings of what it was Christ did for us. The story that we have laid out on the pages of this book that we treasure so much, revealing to us the God who has done all of this that makes justification possible. And notice the way, I love the Psalms, the poetic nature of them, the way he builds the language here. In these first few verses, he uses three different terms for sin, transgression, sin, and then iniquity. And he sort of builds them, stacks them on top of one another. And then as you get to that sort of pile of stacks of stones with these things written on them, he then describes three different ways that God has dealt with these. He goes on to say what God has done to deal with sin. And just in the same few verses, he uses the words forgiven, he uses the words covered, and the word does not impute, as we translate it here in the, in the English. Does not impute. We are forgiven, we are covered, and it will not be held to our account. This is what it means when he says, how blessed is he whose transgression has been forgiven. And then look at the end of verse 2. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, I like that because sin often causes us more than anything else to deceive in order to either cover up or to lie to ourselves quite, quite often. You remember the verse in 2 Timothy where it says, imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's like a sort of a chain, a cycle of deceiving. They are themselves being deceived by sin or whatever it may be, and they are then going on and deceiving others. It's a, it's a vicious cycle, but sin has that way of blinding us and getting us into these sorts of cycles. And this is where we need true repentance. True repentance begins with humility. You can, maybe if you've had that experience, you can sense something of what David's heart is going through here. It, it's in your mind. It's on your heart. You're trying to get on with things to busy yourself so that you don't think on it. And it's sort of to the point that this was affecting him so much that it was physically impacting him. This is why, again, those first words of the psalm, how blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Let's go on and read verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. So David comes to that point where he confessed his sin. This is basically to acknowledge the violation that we have done against God's will. You remember this is very similar, reminds me of the verse, the famous verse, that really one of the first verses I was ever told to memorise as a Christian, 1 John 1, 9. If you're faithful and just to to confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive your sin. Christians bar of soap, they often call it. 
This is the same principle. It was just the same for the, uh, for the Old Testament saint. They had that responsibility to confess their sin too. Leviticus 5.5. 5. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in any of these, he shall confess that in which he has sinned. The concept of personal responsibility and confession was very much still there in the Old Testament. Now, obviously, we know that the operation for going through the processes of that was slightly different in some respects. We'll touch on that a little bit. Let's go straight into verse 6. We'll just carry on reading in this psalm. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. Now, when we confess our sin, we don't have to go to the tabernacle with an offering in that sense. We don't have to go through the ritual processes that were prescribed for the Old Testament uh, Israelites at that time. We know and we can see the glory and the beauty and the prophetic anticipation that all of those things pointed to and yet we get to see the fulfillment in the sense that we live on this side of the cross. We've seen that high priest offer that sacrifice once and for all and therefore we don't necessarily go through that process but we do go to that high priest and we do go to him in prayer with verbal confession, repentance, humility and acknowledge that he is the one who has paid that price and he is faithful and just to forgive us. We do it with prayer, basically. With prayer, we enter boldly into the throne room of God. We can go right into the Holy of Holies. This is the same principle for Old Testament and New Testament. What David is basically saying is, pray before it gets too bad. Because we know it can get bad if we try and ignore it. Pray before we get too bad. It's said that guilt is, the conscience, is to the conscience what pain is to the body. Guilt is to the conscience what pain is to the body. We have pain here. If you ever watched a, or one of your kids, when they don't know what things cause them pain, and they toddle up and touch something that's hot, and immediately they feel that pain, and that's how they learn. Something's wrong there. You don't do that. Guilt is a little bit like that. The Holy Spirit convicts us to that point where we know we need to confess. And this will be a continual theme, I believe, in the Christian life that we will all go through again and again. And then notice the verse that I love, the little phrase that says, you're my hiding place. Whenever I hear the hiding place, obviously I, I jump straight to the title of Corrie ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place. You've read her autobiography, it's not, not quite what he's talking about here, but he's talking about hiding in God in that sense. Now you notice in the first few verses of the psalm, David is hiding from God because he has unrepentant sin in his life, so he's hiding from God. But then in verse, uh, verse 7, he is hiding in God. And this is a good principle because it shows you too, very, very clearly the difference that repentance makes and forgiveness makes. Hiding from God to being hiding in God. And we have the same principle, don't we? When we come to the Lord, it's where it says our life is hid with Christ. It's the same, same thing we see here. Now, Charles Wesley, the famous hymn writer, he wrote a very famous song, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And he drew upon these verses from Psalm 32 here. I'll just read the first stanza that has this little bit about hiding. He says, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my saviour, hide me, till the storm in life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. And it's that little phrase there, hide me, is said that he drew from this psalm. Let's read verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. 
Otherwise, they will come near to you. They will not come near to you, sorry. And now I believe that the psalm sort of changes tune a bit. God speaks prophetically through David now to the nation, and he says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now that sort of gives you the indication that uh, he's sort of watching over. Now for me, I, I don't like the fact, you know, I hate it when people watch what I'm doing in that sense. Like at work, this is why I generally work for myself. I don't like people watching over my work. It's probably something the Lord needs to deal with me for. But in this sense, it's not watching over to spot you doing something wrong. The word is counsel. He will counsel you with his eye. This is a loving care. It's watching over you to help you proceed and flourish in life as you walk along the path of the road as a pilgrim. It's totally different. This is what God is talking about. And this sort of relationship indicates something that is very intimate, where one person is obedient and desiring to be led by the Lord. We would say maybe this is someone with a teachable disposition. That means we know them when you met them. In a spiritual sense, you know, people who love to hear the word of God, love to serve in the church, they just have this sort of Holy Spirit fire in them. It's wonderful to meet people like that. And in this psalm, he sort of contrasts it with this other group where he does this little phrase where he says, you know, don't be as the horse or the mule that don't have this understanding, this counsel of the Lord. And then he says, you've got to, with those people, you have to put a harness on them and it always feels like you're dragging, they're dragging against you. And I believe you, you get this sort of issue here too. In one ear, out the other, we might say in our language. Or it doesn't matter how many times they've heard it, they're still not willing to live it. These are the, the sort of things that it's describing here. It's a very different experience than the one who loves the counsel of the Lord, leading him and teaching him. Verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Now David knew the sorrows of the wicked. You know, he'd been down in that place, the mud, as we would say, and he'd been pulled out of it many times by the Lord. He lived in that period in sin for quite a while. He experienced things in his life, and we'll see in the next psalm another thing that he experienced. We all know these times too, and I'm hoping not the same way. I'm hoping there are no actual physical murderers amongst us here. But didn't Jesus say if we've even looked with hatred in our heart, then it's the same sort of thing like that. So we all need to know the forgiveness of God in these things. But one thing David knew, he did know the sorrows of the wicked and he knew the blessedness of being forgiven. I'm always a, we always have this tendency though, don't us? When, when we're in a period of our faith that is maybe hard or we're not hearing from the Lord or you know, fill in the blank, any different situation, you've gone through something in your life, you're having a low patch and often we think the answer is to be found somewhere else. We often think this, this, is, this is the time where we would often not want to engage and seek the counsel of the Lord in that way. Instead, we are drawn to the sorrows of the wicked. We go and find ourselves, put ourselves in situations that are not good for us in that thing. I think that's just a, a trait of our fallen nature like that. But it's times like this where we really need to come to the Psalms and hear the teaching of the Lord. And we've, we've had it so many times, we were only up to Psalm 32. How many times have we read the phrase, Lord, teach me, Lord, instruct me, Lord, guide me, Lord, show me which path to walk in. This is the continual uh, heartbeat of the Christian because our flesh just pulls us back to that path where we know. We think that it's better to pull away and we end up there doing things and surrounded by people that make it difficult for us. We've all 
again, we've all been in those situations. And one thing, if you've ever been in that situation, you'll know very well that it never really ends up making you happier. Because if you are a born-again believer, your happiness is found in the presence of the Lord. That is where the fullness of joy is. This is what it means. How blessed, how happy, how abundantly satisfied is the person who has received all the spiritual blessings and forgiveness of the Lord. So instead of this, David trusts in the Lord. He trusts that he shall be surrounded with the loving kindness of the Lord. Now, what would you rather have if you're going through a tough time in life? Surround yourself with the sorrows of the wicked or surround yourselves with the loving kindness of the Lord? They are the options. He says, be glad. Now, basically, be glad. Remember these things. Remember how blessed it is to be forgiven, to be redeemed, to be freed from guilt, to have God as your hiding place, to have God as your counsellor. These are all things that we can give thanks for, that we can praise him for, to be glad for. And this is why with that end verse in the Psalms, it says, shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. That means believers who know their God. Because of all these things, it should cause us to shout for joy. Let's go straight into Psalm 33. It follows on very naturally from that call to praise at the end of Psalm 32. It's almost as if it moves straight into it. It says, sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. And he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. So this psalm begins now with an invitation for the righteous to sing praise to the Lord. And the word here is quite an expressive word. It does mean a loud, audible praise. And it also, with music. And it also says with skillfully played music too at this stage. So this is a real uh, good description of worship. Now, to the sort of charismatic end or, or, or generation in our church, this is taken for granted. But as we've spoken of before, music in church has been a huge controversial issue. And now most people think it was just sort of the eras of the church that they didn't like music, and, but you know, they didn't think it was holy enough to be in God's sanctuary because you'd find the same sort of thing in the pubs. That's not how it begun. Let me just share with you two, two quotes from very, very early church fathers. One from Justin Martyr, so this is second century, and then one from Chrysostom, fourth century. Justin Martyr says this, The use of singing with instrumental music was not received in Christian churches as it was among the Jews in their infant state, but only the use of plain song. Notice, that, oh, well, we'll read the next quote. It says, John Chrysostom, he says, it was only permitted to the Jews as sacrifice was for the heaviness and grossness of their souls. God condescended to their weakness because they were drawn off from idols. But now instead of organs, we may use our own bodies to praise him. These are the reasons why music, music fell out of favour in the early church. And if you can pick up on the kind of wildly anti-Semitic tones there, that you'll find this was the time that these things were actually being developed in church history through various different doctrines. The Jews were carnal, infantile. Chrysostom there wrote some of the worst anti-Semitic books in the history of the entire church. And this is the sort of attitude that's coming out here in their infantile state. And I believe that's one of the reasons why we saw it fall out of favour because you cannot read the Old Testament and think that music is something that is not done to praise God. I mean, it's just all over the New Testament. The commands here to praise God with musical instruments is all throughout the Bible. 
Uh, so I believe that's a little part of the history that often gets uh, missed out of that whole debate. Verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. So verse 4, I believe this gives us the reason for this invitation. Why are we told to sing for joy to the Lord? Because the word of the Lord is upright and his works are done in faithfulness. The word of the Lord and the works of the Lord. Now it's important to remember in our lives that the word can never be separated from worship. We're talking about singing for praise for the Lord. Worship must be done in spirit and truth. Remember John 4:24. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The word of God is truth. So this is one thing, as we increase our knowledge and understanding of the scriptures, your praise time will usually undoubtedly increase too, because in the scriptures we have Christ revealed to us. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. One of my favourite verses. With all wisdom you teach and admonish one another, with psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Because you let the word of God dwell in you, and you will just be moved to praise. And it says the word is upright and faithful. God is dependable and he is righteous. We can rely on everything he says and does. And he does what is right in loyal love for his people. Verse 6. But the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So first we saw God's word in worship. Now we see God's word in creation. And I believe this is a very strong affirmation of fiat creation or creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing that we would see here. Notice it does not say that the Lord made it, it says the word of the Lord made it. That's very significant. I believe the reference here is taking you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 with the creation account. If you read through the creation accounts in the early chapters of Genesis, you'll find there are no less than 17 references to God speaking. Specifically, in Genesis chapter 1 alone, the phrase, then God said, is found 10 times. And this is significant. The sages of Israel used to say that it took God ten words to fashion the universe. Those ten God saids in Genesis 1. And then they would say it took him ten more words to give moral order to the universe. That's why they call the Ten Commandments the ten words. Ten words to fashion the universe, ten words to provide the moral framework to the universe. It's just a great way of looking at it. Uh, all these little phrases like the heavens and the deep, they're all phrases that are used in Genesis 1. So this is definitely looking back to that account. But I believe we can go further now because it anticipates the manifestation of God in his creation, but also to his creation, because he is the creative word. Remember the word, as revealed in John chapter 1, was God who became incarnate. Colossians 1.16 says that by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authority, all things have been created through him and for him. The eternal word is the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity who created all things. The same one who said in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and spoke the heavens into existence with those 10 words. And then look at the verse, verse nine. I love this. He spoke and it was done. No argument, no ifs, no buts. It's very definitive. And I would say if only we would uh, really listen to that. This is talking about the creation account the amount of believers and Christians that 
seemingly do not accept the written account of creation and they feel the need to explain it through what is ultimately uh, naturalistic mechanisms, even though we are ultimately dealing with a supernatural event, event here. There's nothing wrong with trying to come up with uh, physical laws and observe how the universe works, but not if we rule out God as creator before we even come to the evidence. There are many ways that people try to do this, adding in big, big bang cosmology or theistic evolution and trying to sort of shoehorn them into somewhere in the Genesis account. I just don't believe you can do that and be faithful to scripture. It destroys the whole narrative. We need to really pay attention to what David is saying here. For he spoke and it was done. End of story. There's no time involved, particularly deep time that we have for evolutionary models of the universe and life. He spoke and it was done. Now, if we look at this from another angle, how many times have your words got you into trouble? Hmm? All of our words have got us into trouble at some point, let's say that. And we've spoken about it before. We've either said words that hurt, have hurt someone or we've been on the receiving end of words that have hurt. All of us have, and I dare say we will be again. That is, again, part of living in this fallen world and being having a sin nature. You say it immediately, you're like, oh no, I wish I didn't say that. You can't take it back once it's said. We call these idle words. We've babbled out many in our lifetimes, but not God. Every single word is purposeful because his word is living and active. He'll never say an idle word. He'll never say something that he'd regret because we're dealing with God here. Remember the, the story of the Roman centurion, uh, Luke, uh, Luke 6 or 7, I believe, where the centurion wants Jesus to come to his house to heal the servant, I believe. And he says, you don't, Jesus, you don't need to come. He says, just say the word and they'll be healed. Just say the word. He spoke and it was done. This is our Lord. Let's read verse 10. We'll go down to 17. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. So in this section now, we see God's counsel again, which is another term for God's word. We've seen his God's word in uh, creation. We've seen it in in worship and now we're seeing it in human history he is ultimately in control of the nations and he has ordered history to fulfill his purposes you remember that sort of slightly cryptic verse in Acts 17 the God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries for their habitation. That's an unusual phrase. I wish they elaborated on it more, but ultimately what it's saying is that God is in charge of history. The whole section of this psalm now reminds me, remember when we studied Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? The Lord sits in the heaven and laughs as they try and rebel against him. Very much that he is the sovereign creator and Lord of history at this time. He's not interested in strong armies. 
kings with mighty armies, warriors with great strength, but rather he is simply interested in those who fear him. Those who stand in awe of him, those who understand who he is, this is what God is interested. Look at verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. To deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in the famine, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our shield, uh, he is our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. God's people can rejoice that our God is faithful to his commitment. He continues to love us regardless of anything we may do. His words have proved powerful and faithful throughout history. His works are consistently righteous and just, and therefore we have good reason to continue our trust and faith in him. For me, that is the message of Psalm 33. And we're going to look at Psalm 34. Now, we're not going to go through it systematically in that sense. There's just one area that I really want to focus on in Psalm 34, but we will read through the whole thing. But look at the title, first of all. It says, a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. And you remember this story. The context of this psalm is so, just gives you a real insight into David's heart and mind here. He, fle- he was fleeing from Saul. He was fearful of Saul and he fled into Philistine territory and he went to uh, the king of Gath, of Gad rather. And then it turned out that they recognized him. They said, is this not David? Or, of the one they sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And he was like, oh no, if they think that, they're going to hurt me. So then he decided, I can't let them know who I am. And then he feigned madness. Do you remember that? And it says that he let saliva run down his lip and he sort of did weird things. I guess he made himself look like a madman. That was the anointed king of Israel. You know, that is a low moment, I would say, for the anointed king of Israel. Feigning madness, letting his own saliva dribble down his beard in front of a Philistine king but yet we have the full account in the Bible. And again, this is why David's such a good sort of character study throughout the Bible, because you just see the highs and lows of his life. And all of us go through highs and lows. There are things we're, we have shame for, we're humiliated about, things that the Lord delivers us from, he pulls us out. This is why the Psalms are so endearing. I believe they have such an impact across history because they just speak to human nature at this time. Now, if you read that story, it's 1 Samuel 21. You'll find out that right after that, he flees and he goes to a cave in Adullam. And then many people join him in that cave and he sort of starts his little band of rebels, as we might say, in that, in that story. And that most people assume this is where he composed that psalm, in that cave, or at least in the environment near what had just happened. So have that in your mind as we go through. And look how he begins. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. And this, all my fears. He fled from Saul because he feared Saul. He ended up in Philistine territory. He feared the Philistine king, so he ended up feigning madness and he ended up in a cave but he knows that the Lord will deliver him from those fears. And that is just such a lesson for us today. They looked to him and were radiant, verse 5, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. 
So in light of the context, think of that whole episode in David's life. And he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Even when he's been taken to that, that low part in his life, he's been taken out of it again. He's still blessing the Lord. And he says, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. Because many of us know we don't really have anything in our own selves that is worth boasting about. Boasting ignites the flesh in that sense. I believe he's really kind of leaning on the thought of Jeremiah 9.24. Let him who boasts, boasts of this. This is the best thing ever that we all can boast about. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And I believe the Apostle Paul quotes that verse two times uh, in the New Testament. Again, boasting in Christ because of everything that he has done. Read verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, uh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And again, highlight this because we talked about it a few weeks ago. The tongue is always mentioned in the Psalms. So many times this, this comes up, the tongues and the lips speaking deceit, and it just testifies again to the powerful nature that we have, that words can be. And we know as believers we want our words to be, you know, it says speak only that which is good for edification. And you know, it's easier said than done, I know that, but that is a, a thing we need to try and do as Christians. Depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it, verse 14. And let's just, we'll just read to the end of the psalm and then I'm going to focus on one area just for a little bit as we close. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And again, you can see the New Testament theology almost jumping out of the page here. If you think of that, you know, all those, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's saying all those who take refuge in God, there is no condemnation. This is the same principle. This is like the, the unity that we have between the Old and New Testament that we see here. But I really want to focus on verse 8 a little bit, where it says, Oh, uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And just speak about this little phrase for a little bit, because I believe David here is offering us an invitation to share in the joyful testimony of knowing God and taking refuge in him. And one thing I like about this expression is that it is so intimate and so personal. It's describing a situation of personal experience. And this is crucial to the Christian faith. So many people have heard about the Christian faith. 
they've heard God, they've heard Bible studies, they've heard sermons, but they have yet to taste and see, because that is something you have to do for yourself. It's crucial. You see, someone can describe to us, say in a restaurant, how wonderful a meal tastes. They can tell you all about the ingredients. You can know everything that's on that plate. You can know how it was cooked. You can know everything about it. And none of that's bad. I'd encourage all of that. But until you go into that restaurant, sit down and taste that food yourself, there is a part of what they're trying to explain to you that you will not grasp. You cannot grasp. And this is one of the things that we see so constantly. Unless you have tasted and seen, you may have heard a lot. You may have seen Christians live a life a lot. You may have been around all of these things. But unless you have gone into that restaurant, tasted that meal yourself, you will not fully understand what is being described here by David. You will not understand what it is when he says, how blessed are we to be forgiven. You will not understand what the sorrows of the wicked are, what the blessedness of forgiveness is. This is what he is talking about here. Let me read to you just a small passage from A.W. Tozer uh, commenting on this verse. He says, let me say it again another way. The Christ of the Bible is not rightly known until there is an experience of him within the believer. For our Saviour and Lord offers himself to human experience. When Jesus says, come unto me all ye that labour and are heavy laden, it is an invitation to a spiritual experience. He is saying, will you consent to come and have you added determination to your consent? Now I love that. This is me speaking now, not Tozer again. But the way he says... Will you consent to come? Will you accept the invitation that Christ continually makes to come into relationship with him? But then he says, have you added determination to your consent? And that implies that you know, just, you've actually got to do something in that sense. I'm not in any way referring to works-based salvation, but I'm saying relationship and experience is something that you will work on and you will cultivate in your life. It's no different with the Lord. I would say he is the one always with the open hands we are the ones that hold back on that and we finish off this quote then come so have you added determination to your consent then come come now yes our lord gives himself to us in experience david says in psalm 34 taste and see that the lord is good and i think david said exactly what he meant to say surely the holy spirit was saying through david you have taste buds in your soul for tasting for experiencing spiritual things taste and experience that God is good. Now to be sure, to clarify, I am not in any way referring or even referencing or even have in my mind what we so often hear in progressive Christianity of an experiential faith. That term is used, you might read that a lot in some books, it, that is referring to a faith that overly elevates experience above doctrine and plays the two off against each other. I find that sort of view just to be so foreign to the word of God because true experience with God is actually connected intimately to the word of God. Worship is spirit and truth as we already saw. 1 Peter 2 verses 2 and 3, it says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you're not growing in your Christian faith, this is the answer for you right here. You long for the pure milk of the Lord, uh, of the word. But then look at verse 3 in that verse, 1 Peter 2, verses 2 to 3. It then goes on to say, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So the word of God and tasting the kindness of the Lord are very much connected all throughout the Bible. The word is where we taste his kindness. It's where we have his loving kindness revealed to us. It's where his attributes are displayed. It's where we read about the actions, the, the Lord that has 
operated throughout all of history. Everything that he has done for us, that he will do for us, is revealed to us in the word of God. And we should long to taste it. We should long to have that personal experience with him. And as we do, as we apply the word of God to our lives, as we live it out, he will meet us when the, the Holy Spirit joins together with the living word of God and we have that experience where we taste and see and we know that the Lord is upright, the Lord is full of loving kindness and that the Lord is faithful and he is very much a present, ever-present God in our own lives. And I can tell you that those moments, they may not always be like that in the Christian life, but those moments when you have them, they will sustain you for years and years at a time. And as, I, as we want to close now, and it's good, we're going to move into a time of prayer I put on my notes here that I want to pray for this for us at the end. Really that we might accept that invitation to taste and see the Lord because I know in my own walk it's something that you feel like it's been a long time since I've had that sort of intimate connection with the Lord. I want that. We've talked about all the things that David has been through in his life. Humiliation, shame, forgiveness, being blessed, being delivered, singing praises, having worship, the word of God. And then just ending with this taste and see, experience everything that God has given and everything that he is. So I'm going to pray for us and then maybe we'll just, after I finish praying, we'll just open it up and move into the time of corporate prayer that we have here. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you just so much for your word, Lord, that it's like a light that just shines into our hearts and into our souls, Lord, and exposes Suppose all the things in our life that we need to give to you, Lord. We thank you that you wash us clean by the washing of the water of the word. We thank you that your blood cleanses us from all sin. We thank you that you are a God who forgives us, Lord God. And I just pray now for myself, for everyone in this room right now who have come here to hear the word of God. They want that experience with you, Lord. I pray that you would meet them in their own lives, wherever they are at, whatever they are doing, that they would be able to taste and see that you are good that you're full of kindness, that you're a God who saves, Lord, and there is nothing else in this world that can compare. We pray that and ask that you would do that by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.